So I guess the fox felt secure and it was perched on the ledge at eye level only like four feet from me. But yet there was this <laughs> gap in between, so I guess it felt safe and it was just pulling apart a rat and you could hear it like crunching through the bones and hearing the sinew rip. It was uh, spectacular. You are listening to Hey, podcast listener. We are releasing this particular episode about red-tailed hawks in Philadelphia and in cities more general in coordination with the Field Guides podcast. We're both releasing urban hawk episodes. They're going to be doing one on Cooper's hawks. So as soon as you finish listening to this episode, head on over to the Field Guides, either through their website or through your podcast listening app of choice, download their Cooper's Hawks episode and make it an urban hawk twofer. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony Crosdale. And... Christian Hunold. We are currently freezing our toes off. It's not that bad. It's chilly. Um, and we are at Logan Circle in Philadelphia, bringing you a field guides style podcast episode about urban red tail hawks that's right i'll do the standard stuff if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com you can hit us up on twitter at herb wildlife cast find us on facebook um, whatever your podcast listening app of choice please leave us a positive review there and that helps other people find the podcast and please feel free to let us know what ideas you might have i hope this episode opens up people's ideas and, and gets your wheels turning about other ways we can do an episode or you might be able to do an episode if you're in a place where you can observe some interesting urban wildlife in your city and do some recording outside with it. We would love to incorporate that into an episode. So we're going to talk a little bit about red tail hawks in cities. Let's start with Tony. Tell us a little bit about red tail hawks. Red tail hawks are large hawk. They are a beautio, which is the group of hawks that have long broad wings and um, medium sized short tails that are kind of wide and um, they generally across the genus seem to favor small mammals although there are some that diversion down and specialize in birds or amphibians or insects even but red tail hawks they're uh, they're on the large side not the largest BDO but they're on a large side for BDOs and they you know traditionally specialize in squirrels rabbits voles, mice, uh, but they will eat reptiles and birds as well, and they, um, their name, Video Jamaicanensis, means that they're actually in the Caribbean, but they range from, like, southern Mexico and Belize all the way up to, uh, uh Sub-Arctic Canada and Alaska, and they have a bunch of different color morphs, um, mostly they're brown above creamy below with a, with, a, with a red tail on top, but there are some that are almost all black with like a whitish tail and uh, kind of everything in between. And they are, I think, very beautiful and they are the source of the typical hawk noise that you, or eagle noise. <laughs> That's right, in movies, whenever you hear an eagle, it's actually a uh, red tailed hawk. Yeah, eagles kind of do this like, like, bald eagles kind of do this like little cackle noise. Which totally does not sound appropriate for their heft, you know? Yeah. That's right. And red tails make, like, the greatest noise you've ever heard a bird make. It's like... And, uh... <laughs> yeah, I was out with a, a 
my wife actually a couple of years ago. We were at a wildlife refuge in Delmarva, and we were I think we were shooting a heron at the time. You know, it was sort of sitting there in front of us quietly. It was sort of a beautiful uh, winter day. And there was by some... shooting, you mean the nature photography? That's that right. That's right. We're not we're not looking for dinner. Um, the heron was. Um, and uh, off in the distance, I sort of was hearing some eagles, you know, doing their sort of cackling noise. You know, sounds a little bit like a very large chicken. And uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, Jen. That's looks our at, national symbol. And Jen, and Jen, Jen looks at me and goes, "What is that noise?" I said, "That's that's bald eagles." And she'd never heard bald eagles, so she was sort of victim of the same hoax, right? That everybody's exposed to when they think they know what an eagle sounds like because the movie people or television people all use the red-tailed hawk so when you actually hear an eagle in person for the first time it's a little bit disconcerting like you don't know what to make of it a little disappointing yeah i once saw a i was in a salt marsh looking at um doing a christmas bird count i got to see a pair of bald eagles open a cedar um eating a green blue heron yeah and, and it was like right about the t- courtship time so they were like passing it back and forth yeah well they were just like nibbling at each other's bill and like preening each other yet they were like covered in blood <laughs> so i wonder if they scavenged it or killed it. i suspect they killed it if it was that bloody right yeah i will i will steer us slightly back towards hawks by by uh, talking about a on a, a different marsh a bald eagle nest that i was probably getting a little too close to um and then got away from but we noticed that like close to the base of this enormous I want to say sycamore, but I'm not sure what country. It might have been a sycamore. There was a like, like a, a corpse of a red-tailed hawk um, that we guess sort of got a little too close to the bald eagle nest, and then that was it for the the red tail. Well, there's that video of a of a eagle cam oh. where for some reason a, a red-tailed hawk flies into. It's a bald like watching eagle someone nest. turn the wrong way up a highway or yes. something. Yeah, you flies know, you're a, like, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. It flies into a bald eagle <laughs> nest with the with the female eagle on the nest, and she just like, it's crazy. I mean. She just grabs it and kills it. Yeah, it's, it's like instantly. It's like, and then it's just like, oh, I guess I have food. It starts plucking it. <laughs> but it was crazy for her, so how big a red tail hawk is. Yeah. How the eagle just, it was just like, no problem. Crunch. Yeah. Right. So let's set this, this scene a little bit where we're standing. As we stand here, we've been watching uh, both house sparrows and I think white-throated sparrows yeah. zip around us. We are, Logan Circle is kind of a big monumental square in the middle of Philadelphia and there's the Ben Franklin Parkway which is this majestic parkway that heads out to the art museum. It's like modeled after like the avenues of Paris. Exactly and it is um, lined with big stone and brick and brownstone buildings. The the big central library is near us. The big Catholic Basilica is over there. We got a couple of big museums uh, and then some skyscrapers towering around us. The circle itself has. Is a, it actually Logan Square, but it's a circle, or vice versa? I think, I I've seen both. People, yeah. I, I call it. I call it Logan Circle, but I think the official with, name is Square. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a, yeah, it is a square, but there's a circle in within the That's square. Right. Yeah. Whatever shape you'd like, um, it is. Uh, there's a fountain in the middle uh, where we actually are one of our first episodes of the whole podcast. We talked with um, Issa Betancourt, who's an entomologist at the neighboring. Academy of Natural Sciences, who does a, 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 a bug sampling survey, uh, study using the, the fountain as a bug trap, essentially. All these bugs drown in it, and then she can fish them out and see what's flying by. Um, currently, the, the fountain's empty, uh, but there's a, it's planted with um, some low shrubs. Uh, and the 
controversial Polonias. And the controversial Polonias. There are these enormous Polonias, aka princess trees, which are an exotic, in most other places considered in our country, like considered kind of a trash tree. It grows up on railroad tracks or in urban settings. It's and alien. It's alien. And so they, there are these enormous Polonia trees here that were all just reaching the end of their natural lives. And they, they took them out and then like everybody wanted them to plant, or the, the neighbors all wanted them to plant the same kind of tree again. And so those of us who are more the urban nature folks were like, oh, come on, we have to plant Polonius. Um, but they're here, and so now they're, they're growing bigger and bigger. Um, but I think there's some native plantings in the shrubbery. I don't know. What does this stuff look like? I have to look at it. I, I, it looks like it's, you know, they have some taxis, and then they probably planted some, uh, those are hydrangeas. I'm not sure which ones they are. Maybe it looks like there's some native, um, it looks like there's some probably a native or native-ish dogwood. Um, shrubs planted. Yeah, but the shrubbery attracts a lot of uh, small birds, white throats, house sparrows. Um, I think that's probably mostly it. Um, what about the rats, Christian? And lots of rats. Lots and lots of rats. We haven't seen one this morning. The hawks are doing a good job, probably. Plus, there's snow on the ground. It's a little cold. Um, but the reason that the, the hawks... So there's a, a pair of red-tailed hawks on the parkway. The female has been here for about a decade, and she's now on her fourth mate, as far as we know. What do you call her, Christian? We call her Mom, which is to say <laughs> the community of hawk watchers, um, sort of the, the hawks fans, they have a Facebook page and everything, call her Mom. And um, they, they often roost on the facade of the Franklin Institute on cold nights like this. Conveniently, of course, not today, so we haven't actually seen <laughs> any hawks this morning. Um, but but they, they like the square here because of the rats in the parkway generally. Um, rats and pigeons, but probably predominantly rats, are the, the staple of their diet. Um, it's easy for them to catch rats here. They'll sit on one of the tall light posts and then just swoop down on a rat and Voila, consume it breakfast. right in front of you. Yep. I saw one um, at the um, library. It was sitting on the... library kind of has a moat around it. There's a water in it, but it prevents you from the sidewalk to get right up next to the side of the building. There's like a 10-foot drop in between. So I guess the hawk felt secure, and it was perched on the ledge at eye level only like four feet from me. But yet there was this <laughs> gap in between, so I guess it felt safe. And it was just pulling apart a rat, and you could hear it like crunching to the bones and hearing the sinew rip. It was uh, spectacular. So <laughs> hard to follow that, Tony. Do you guys want to walk just a little bit and see if we... Sure. We're within sight of the uh, city hall where the Peregrine is, too. So there's other raptors about. There's also some Cooper's hawks. That are... I saw one when I was here for the uh, uh, Women's March right after Trump. I was... think I saw the same Cooper's hawk because I was yeah. with some people and I saw this, like, flock of pigeons, like, in a ball. Like, Yeah, that like... was exactly what I saw, yeah. <laughs> I was like, there's a Cooper's hawk up there somewhere. <laughs> we see, I mean, we see lots and lots of Cooper's hawk. They're just not as predictable as to where to find them as the red tails. And Christian, you were saying there's a Cooper's hawk that's been trying to, yeah. to horn in on the red tail space. Yeah, so there's, I mean, so the red tails and the Cooper's hawk's territory seem to overlap and they mostly leave each other alone. It's the same thing that you were saying with the eagles before. During the nesting season, the Cooper's hawks don't get too close to the red tail nests and, you know, everybody's happy. Yeah, but there's been a young you know, immature Cooper's hawk, a male, around the circle this fall because of the sparrows. It's sort of an easy meal for them. And the red tails have been pretty aggressive in uh, chasing him off, beating him up a little whenever they can find him. 
so I don't know if he's, <laughs> if he's still actually around. Poor guy. Yep. All right, so, and just in terms of perspective right here, we're, we're now, we have walked around the circle, so now we're looking straight down the parkway at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is being hit with the beautiful light of the early morning. One of the things that I love about red-tailed hawks is that they are, A, they've become quite urban, and B, they are easy to see. And yep. so for a lot of people, it's a, a great access point for urban nature. When I was doing some research for this episode, I had trouble finding, let's call it, you know, sort of scientific literature about red-tailed hawks in urban settings specifically. Um, it seems that because they're doing relatively, and if I'm wrong, please let us know. We would love to feature your research. But they, uh, I mean, they're a species that does pretty well in general. They're not like on the, they're not endangered or anything. And so there's less money, I guess, to support researching them from, from sort of government sources. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of one study, um, sort of a long-term study of urban red-tailed hawks nests which appear to show that, yeah, they do very well in cities. And they do even a little bit better in the urban core than in less dense, more suburban neighborhoods in terms of nest productivity. It wasn't entirely clear why. Probably lots and lots of food. Yeah. Uh, the rats we mentioned earlier maybe better microclimates. But the conclusion was that cities might effectively be sources um, for red-tailed hawks. Hey, podcast listeners. The study that Christian was referring to is called Landscape Correlates of Reproductive Success for an Urban-Suburban Red-Tailed Hawk Population, published by William Stout, Stanley Temple, and Joseph Papp. This is from the Journal of Wildlife Management in 2006. The study was conducted in Milwaukee and surrounding counties. So that cities are sort of producing more hawks than so they can support. So when you talk about a source... We're talking, you're talking about sources versus sinks. Yes, That's correct. Yeah. So it's not a place. So, it's, so the narrative is not, well, they're moving into cities because their quote unquote natural habitat is being destroyed or fragmented or anything like that. It actually seems like cities are, in the ways relevant to red tailed hawks, perfect habitat. And it's not, and, and you worry sometimes that a city or you can set up what they, you hear sometimes called a, an ecological trap where a habitat might look attractive to an animal, I guess a plant, but usually I hear this about animals, that, that they're then drawn to the city where then they have lower reproductive success than they otherwise would. Right. And so it kind of like is a, a, a vacuum that keeps sucking in surrounding animals. Since that's a sink, and then it's a source if it's the opposite, where, it's, where they're producing enough offspring to then fly off and populate other places. It's funny, we're guilty of this. As well, especially like if you look at our logo, it's a peregrine falcon. Yes. And it makes sense for a couple of reasons. They actually nest on buildings um, almost exclusively in the urban setting. And it's a good choice for our podcast because the peregrines live almost around the world. Yeah, I think it's And red tails are only a North American species. But there are way more red tails in the city than peregrines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet we always think of like the peregrine as like the urban raptor, but yet. There's probably at least 10 to 1, if not 20 to 1. I would imagine. I think the city is sort of, you know, wherever, at least in Philadelphia, wherever you think there should be a red-tailed hawk nest, there is one, effectively. So, I mean, it, I mean there's three or four nests between the Art Museum and the Falls Bridge along the river alone. Yeah. Um, and that's probably four or five miles. That's about four miles. Of, yeah. 
of road along a river. So every mile or so there's a nest. Yes. There's yeah. definitely one on the east side of Center City. Yeah, no, and, and there's some in Center City. I mean, obviously, you know, young birds sometimes get in trouble with vehicle collisions, you know, after they fledge. So that happens. Um, rat poison is a problem in terms of uh, poisoning of hawks. So that happens. I just had regular. it removed from the environmental center. The, the, uh, there are these things on the... Oh, the little black boxes? Yeah, the, the uh, you know, I'm now the director of environmental center and I, you know, it's not like someone walked me through everything that, you know... Maintenance does. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, we had a contractor come by, and they're like, yeah, we're, oh, cool, talking, and they're like, yeah, I was like, what are you doing, what's that box? She's like, oh, it's the rat poison. I was like, did you just sit here? I was like, no, get us out of here now. Because <laughs> with rodenticide, from what I gather, it's a bait in a box that the rodents come in, they, they nibble on it, and then it causes them to, like, eventually bleed from within. Like, yeah, it's fraternally hammered. Yeah. yeah. So, um... That's a problem with other urban predators, with like bobcats and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and uh, mountain lions and stuff. But, so, but in fact, the next to last, the penultimate male hawk on the parkway um, succumbed to uh, rat poisoning uh, a couple of years ago. Um, he was weakened and then I think he flew into the, collided with the Franklin Institute building and then just died a few days later. So while we're waiting for a hawk show, let me get into a quick mini debate. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I don't know if we can debate because we would agree. Hawks suck. No, they don't. No, well, well one of the things people, um, someone has said this. I might have even thought this and they didn't say it, but I don't remember. Of course, with my cat arguments, um, <laughs> there's a whole idea of a barn cat, right? Yeah. So yeah. what's better, a barn cat or a rodenticide? Huh. Uh, what's, what's worse, I guess, for the environment, worse? a barn cat or a rodenticide? I would say the cat but I am kind of torn on the topic I would I'm trying to think what are I know I'm, I'm adding more nuance like what what are the like are the rodenticides that are more that are more confined in their effects than the anticoagulants they tend to use now I don't know what do you think because the cats are going to kill all kinds of other stuff besides the mice yeah and so right and uh, they're going to kill yeah lots of other things besides the mice plus they're also killing you know probably killing mice that are good that we like you know like our voles and yeah. lightfoots and etc yeah. Um, yeah I mean I haven't heard I do understand that it's like the number one reason rehab centers get uh, a raptor is from rodenticide poisoning but yet I don't hear that it's a a significant cause in the decline well, anywhere well no it doesn't I mean these regret tales it doesn't seem to affect I mean again we don't really have good numbers right because nobody really studies this um, as far as I know it doesn't seem to harm the population, but obviously lots of individual raptors um, end up having shorter and probably more miserable lives as a result of sort of chronic or semi-chronic, you know, growing weaker from a buildup of anticoagulant. Now, which one's better or worse? I don't know that that's necessarily the right question. Um, that, that's there, one thing that could be argued. There are, there are, you know, for working cats, as there, people say. There are better, there are probably better ways to manage yeah. rodent problems to start with. So, um, not surprisingly, the media center of our country uh, has some media about the hawks with some, they did a, and this is one of the studies I was able to find. In 2007, the Audubon there did, the New York City Audubon did a raptor breeding survey they found about 20 nests of red-tailed hawks in New York City, plus about 12 pairs that looked like they were nesting, but they couldn't quite find the nests. 
about half of those nesting that they could find, I guess, were those nests were located on human structures. Hey, podcast listeners. I need to make clear that the following anecdotes are from news reports, not from the Audubon's Raptor study. At St. John's University in Queens, people who are walking too close to Redtail nest there kept getting dive bombed, and some people got a little torn up in the get their, their scalps a little bit bloodied. There were funny stories about hawks trying to pick off people's chihuahuas from their fire escapes, although that was unclear whether that was just a more of a defensive thing around the nest or if they just thought the chihuahua would make a good meal because the same people had their pit bull attacked also on their fire escape. And so then they're like, okay, well, maybe that's more about a predator uh, or a defensive response. Yeah. Or could be the hawk one of the perch on the ledge and then those little things nipping at him. Or big things that matter. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? New York was sort of like, has been a focus of media about them because they've had this very charismatic, they had for a long time this hawk called Pale Mail that got a lot of attention. And then the community of hawk watchers developed in New York, kind of similar to the community of hawk watchers we have in Philadelphia. Um, dude, where's the line? I'm sort of trying to find the line for this. The hybridization of ecological imaginaries, as it were, lags behind the hybridization of ecologies. Yeah. Leave a good line. We'll dive into this in a minute, but the idea is that, that a lot of what we talk about in this podcast and people who get into urban nature get into is um, how it, that we're sort of, we get stuck with these very binary ideas of the wild and the urban or the, yeah. the, the countryside and the urban and nature belongs out there and not in here. Or the red-tailed hawks are a species, I mean, frankly, they'll say the same for the white-throated sparrows around us, but the red-tailed hawks, in a very big, emblematic way, like, show that, that these binaries aren't accurate, or, they, or that the, the reality of their lives is not how we would construct them. That's right. Yeah. No, no, I think that captures really well in much simpler words. Um, yeah, I was drawn into the hawks um, about maybe five years ago. Um, I've sort of been vaguely aware of the, the red-tailed hawk's nest that was at the time, it was at, on the window ledge of the Franklin Institute, just a few steps away from here on the, overlooking the parkway. And I think I was, I think it might have been a column you were writing for Grid Magazine and they wanted pictures of the red-tails. And so I went down there. Say for years, I was writing for Grid Magazine, and Christian was like the photographer. Yeah, but yeah. this was early days, and yeah. I was—I'm a sort of a, a wildlife photographer on the side, and I'm—I'm I'm sort of, you know, f- fall victim to these binaries as well. Um, you know, when I go shoot wildlife, I go to sort of wildlife refuges and nature preserves, and you know, places that are sort of effectively set aside for wildlife. And so, going down to the parkway to shoot red-tailed hawks was a little felt a little strange to me at the time, right? It was sort of, um, it was an after, I remember an afternoon in May, the hawks were sort of big enough to be jumping around on the, on the window ledge, a couple of stories up. Um, it was sort of beautiful sunlight like today, but it was rush hour on a weekday. It was noisy and smelly and dirty, and the hawks were sort of, you know, tame. They sat there. You didn't have to do any of the usual stuff that you do when you're like wildlife photographer out in the field, you know, you sort of... Um, you have to be quiet and patient and sort of sit, you know, it feels a little bit sort of vaguely heroic to be doing that. You know, here you can just walk up to these things and take their picture and it didn't feel particularly um, challenging or, or even very interesting. I mean, the light was nice, so I was happy about that. Um, but then I sort of, I went back a little while later and, 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 and suddenly it sort of dawned on me, there's something going on here, right? There, I mean, first of all, I met all these people who were sort of camped out at the nest 
uh, watching it um, sort of semi-religiously or, or very sort of regularly on a daily basis. So that was interesting. And they seemed to know a lot about um, the way these hawks were sort of moving through the territory. They had a sort of a good mental map of their territory, their daily habits, what they were doing, um, how, how that year's nesting season was different from the previous year's nesting season. Um, and then suddenly this sort of whole ecology sort of revealed itself, right? The, the, the prey animals, the rats, the, the pigeons, the squirrels, um, the human community that had sort of grown up around the hawks, you know, to the point of naming them, being able to identify individual animals. And uh, yeah, so the parkway revealed itself to be prime wildlife habitat right here in the middle of the city in a way that I hadn't really ever thought about um, or was aware of. And, and, and I think what often happens when we do become aware of it, we're sort of taught to to devalue it, right? We talk about the non-native species or, you know, the, the rodenticide and the vehicle collisions, all the sort of human-made threats as though all of it were terrible. And, and a lot of it is sort of terrible. And yet the hawks seem to get by just fine, right, as a species. So it sort of calls into question a lot of these ideas that we have about where nature is supposed to be or not supposed to be in the city. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it sort of was a, uh, an eye-opener for me. I see I hear you saying, like, you know, my Malayan night heron on my list is, for some reason, there's a population that's in the botanic gardens in Taipei. Yeah. And it's usually a bird that's like super hard to see. Right. And it's like this rainforest heron, but yet you can just walk up to it right there in a lawn and, and, and it somehow feels less... It feels cheaper for you? When you yeah, but like I know, I know better, you know? So like I remember in uh, Australia, uh, Phillip Island, like to, to go see the um, blue penguins, the little penguins. My uh, bandmates were on a tour. Didn't want to pay to go see the penguins because they're like, "Well, you're sitting on bleachers and and you're just watching them come in." And I'm like, "Yeah, what's wrong with that?" And they just thought <laughs> like keeping the experience. But I'm like, "This is where they breed, and the, it's like you're the the humans are the ones. The penguins are wild. The humans are the ones." Like confined, you're, you're you're literally confined in an area that you can't leave. Right. It's for the penguins' protection, but it's like it's it's no less cool or remarkable. It's, it's way better for the penguins. But it is weird how how like you know if we're like, taught even people who do this for a hobby and specialize in it like us, it's still a little bit in the back of our minds. Like it's not as cool to see something. It's not a, you know it's hard. It's something that's harder to see. It's like better to see it in the in the in the wild and in, in what we think is the wild like. Yeah, in, in a forest or like a big prairie or whatever, rather than just like in a city. But you know, it is really cool. They're here. Yeah, I haven't seen any. I don't think I've ever seen a peregrine in the wild. In, in, well, I was going to say in the wild. This is the wild. I haven't seen a peregrine outside of a city. I've seen multiple peregrine falcons in Philadelphia. Right. Um, I remember I, I wanted. I have to be circumspect about where I was, but um, I was in an urban place in the Midwest doing what I do, herping. And was find had I, I found like several fox snakes, which are not necessarily a very rare snake, but they're something you think about out in like prairies and farm country and maybe wetlands and in the Midwest. And it was a it was basically a park in the city where I was, you know, I was sort of tripping over them. It's <laughs> like here's another one. Here's another one. I was feeling kind of guilty. <laughs> it's like the easiest. It's like I should be sweating more to <laughs> to, to justify this like experience, but it was still a great time. Yeah. Um, we are 
Now looking at Moore College of Art and Design, which is, I mean, this meant we walked across the circle. It's next to the Academy of Natural Sciences. Um, it is a one, two, three, four, five, like seven-story building, just a blocky, yeah. modernist brick and concrete-looking thing. With, uh, with a lot of glass in the entryway. With some trees right across the street, That's so right. they reflect in the glass. Yeah, and so, so one summer, I want to say it was 2014, during the, the nesting season, um, the hawks had raised uh, three chicks, and of course they, they duly fledged in uh, early June. We usually have uh, three or two um, chicks, sort of depending on the year, but it was three that year. And the remarkable thing about the, the story of the Parkway hawks up until then is that as far as the hawk watchers sort of were aware, none of the chicks previously, some, I don't know, 12 or 15 up to that point, had died during the time on, on the parkway. It's not a bad rate for wild hawks I mean, either, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's huge, there's lots of traffic here, um, so definitely vehicle collisions are always an option for sort of a, you know, clumsy young hawk. Um, it's in general with hawks, it's 70% of yeah. die within the first year. Oh, yeah, yeah, so we don't know what happens after that, right, because they, they tend to disperse. Um, they could starve to death. and Yeah, they could starve to death. They could be killed by an yeah. owl or you know, all sorts of mishaps um, happen to them. They, and they disperse from the parkway around Labor Day, usually sort of give it, you know, maybe sometimes they stick around a little bit longer, but they eventually leave, and so nobody really knows what happens to them then. But anyway, so up until that year, not a lot of casualties, um, at least during the nesting season that we're I mean, sometimes there'd be, um, you know, early fledges and things like that, and, you know, and people would scoop up a young hawk and take them to the uh, wildlife clinic at the Schuylkill Center for observation or something like that. So that would happen. You know, they, they'd often be fine after that. Anyway, so the, that summer, the hawks were spending a lot of time on Logan Circle here, diving after birds, the adults as well as eventually the juveniles. You know, people speculated why that was the case. Um, there were some uh, major construction pro uh, projects on the parkway, the Barnes Foundation. Um, the museum was getting built, and so people thought, well, maybe some of the rats were getting displaced or there weren't as many rats for whatever reason. Or the homeless people who tend to camp out around here. Were not here because of the construction. I mean, there's this sort of interconnected ecology of right. food waste and yeah. rats and pigeons and obviously... Or not even just them, it's people who walk around and toss their pretzels in the trash yeah. can. Maybe there's fewer foot traffic. Less foot, That's less right, foot yeah. Traffic that also yeah. So for whatever reason, the sort of um, um, prey availability had sort of shifted a little bit and um, the hawks were spending a lot of time uh, down here on Logan Circle, go, you know, going after birds in these trees. And then within sort of a matter of weeks, two of the fledglings uh, flew, you know, face first into the glass facade of the Moore College. And uh, both hawks died. Uh, I, I, one, maybe not immediately, a few days later. Yeah. Sort of two fatal collisions. And the hawk watchers, of course, were sort of pretty upset by this. This sort of, you know, was a departure from normal for them. And they get it, I mean, as you observe something and sort of rooting for them to... Oh, yeah, no, and they were, you know, and they sort of got organized and they got a little um, email and social media campaign going to contact the college and say, look, isn't there something we can do about um, these giant uh, glass windows um, above your entryway? And, uh, and the college responded very quickly uh, with the proposal to have some of their students design some, some textile banners and to hang them in front of the glass windows yep. um, above the, the entryway and they've been there ever since and 
you would look at it and think, oh, it's a college of art and design. Of course, they're hanging yeah those banners. That's right. But I they think they call them scrims, right? Like in front of their their building. Yeah, and they they switch them out um, every now and then as students make new ones. Yeah, but it might keep some birds from uh, colliding with that with that window. But I thought it was sort of an interesting story because it, again, brings home this idea that there is sort of a way to make urban spaces useful or less deadly, yeah. right, both to humans. I mean, it hasn't changed the use of the building for the people that use it and made it slightly more aesthetically attractive, arguably. Yep. Um, and it might save... I'm not um, just a fan of this kind of modernist architecture, but that's a topic for another day. Yeah, but it might, it might you know, save some birds' lives, or at least yeah. people are sort of thinking about it in those terms, right? That there are things we, need, we, we could be doing uh, to make sort of the, the, the built environment built by and for humans friendlier to animals in my life. Yeah. Some people talk about this in terms of sort of reconciliation ecology, right? The idea that you can have or win-win ecology, right? You can, you can sort of have your city but with just a little bit of work, you can make it friendlier to non-human species, and this is sort of one example of that. I've solved the window collision problem, though. Oh, yeah? Moving forward. Just oh, keep the windows open? Well, everybody keeps <laughs> trying to do the... Uh, every new building is all glass. Yeah, especially now, these Comcast yeah. towers that are going yeah, up here. Yeah. So we got to go back to brutalism. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. More yeah. of that. A whole yeah. lot of cement. Yeah. Why can't I go to brick? I like the brick. Yeah. yeah, go back to brutalism. Go down yeah. the yeah. like the roundhouse, you know, like yeah. the, the police headquarters in Philly. Like, okay. how many window birds do you find there? You know, <laughs> let's go back to brutalism. Save right. the birds. Sounds good. Other solutions that have been found um, have been uh, films that you can lay on the the windows because the birds basically need to see. I think it's an inch or two, or lines or images no more than an inch or two apart, and that will represent to the birds not, something they can't fly through. And then on Temple's campus, Temple University, they found that just like at migration season, especially if they just roll down some mesh nets in front of the really problem windows, that cuts back a lot on the collisions because the birds just, either they see them or they just bounce off of them and it's not like hitting glass. So uh, the big problem windows tend to be reflective windows that reflect vegetation so that the birds, what'll happen, this is what we found in Philadelphia, uh, Audubon working with the, Frank, or sorry, the Audubon working with the Academy of Natural Sciences, Keith Russell from Audubon was, I don't know if he led the studies, was very involved in the studies, and I interviewed him about them. Uh, what really seems to kill them is when the birds, when, when, Cooper's hawk. Uh, that was a Cooper's hawk? Yep. All right, nice. There's a Cooper's hawk flying right above the Blue Cross building. No, that's a Harrier. Oh, yeah. what? Am I see what I think I'm seeing? It's too big for a Cooper's. I think you're right. Or it's one of the red tails. Can't be that big. So it just disappeared between some skyscrapers. A challenge of birding in Center City. You get a picture you can zoom in. Oh, wings look kind of long. Yeah. Is that a Harrier? That's a Harrier. That's crazy. Why is a Harrier here? Well, there's anybody here. Rats. I know, but. <laughs> okay, what's a harrier doing hunting for rats that high up? <laughs> Shouldn't it be like skimming over <laughs> the parkway? I don't know. Let's see it again. Oh. That's too big to be a Cooper's, so that's for sure. Harriers and Coopers are about the same size. Really? I feel like the harriers have like longer wings. Yeah. Longer wings, yeah. Yeah, well, they weigh the same, probably. But you don't think it's a red tail with its. Wings? No, it's definitely not. Okay. 
You were talking about Audubon. Oh, how, to, how they, they, they basically walked around picking up dead birds. Um, is that it over there? Migrating birds will, um, will land, take a, like they're taking a break on their flight, and then they'll sort of like think, oh look, a shrub, or oh look, a tree, and fly right over to it and smack into the glass, yeah. and that's how a lot of them die. All right, we're looking at the... It's a Harrier. Huh? We were not expecting to see this. So it has sort of like a short looking head. Which is always what there strikes it is. me as funny about the Harrier's kind of owl looking heads, right? Yep, well, there it is. Tony, give us a quick synopsis. Tell us about Harriers and where it's you would fly. Expect it's to over see a them. marsh or a. It's over the church. Very no. And so they classically like fly kind of like huh. a little low to the ground. Yeah. Um, at sort of an even level, like watching the marsh, or I think of them over marshes. Yeah. Like looking down to see like a little flying. mouse or, or bird that they can pop it's down on. Flying toward. Now it's flying north. It's over 16th and Callow Hill now, not quite that far north. Over the tall skyscraper right in front of us, Tony, to the right. It's right over top of the skyscraper now. Not that ever. is a Harrier, that yep. is crazy. Yep. <laughs> it's funny how we're not Not the hawk we were trying to see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally different species. Um, and one you usually don't associate with urban places. That's right. Um, but super neat. Um, anyhow, but the, the, that same year, Christian, I think another of the red tail fledglings was injured, rehabbed, and then, um, if I'm remembering, this was released into an, a more classically wild setting. Yeah, we don't know for sure, because the, the wildlife folks at the clinic sort of wouldn't say, but they, um, they released the bird. You know, it, 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 there's, so this is the one surviving bird. Um, probably collided with a car, was sort of found one morning, a little dazed, um, and taken to the wildlife clinic for rehab, uh, spent a month there, and, you know, and then was released by the rehabber to parts unknown. I mean, the and, and so some of the hawk watchers were sort of asking, well, why wasn't the hawk, um, why wasn't the young hawk returned to the parkway, right? Because usually they spend, you know, the sort of later part of the summer and early fall sort of being taught by the parents, you know, how to hunt and sort of how to survive and they bring food and the sort of family bonds that, that seem to persist a little bit after um, the young birds fled, right? They don't fledge and then immediately become independent, but it's sort of a process of two or three months where they, where the ties gradually sort of, you know, the leash is lengthened and eventually. Okay, so we yeah, just, so, um, we just turned around and I was, this so anyway, so, so some, some, a couple of hawk archers I remember at the time sort of asking, well, why, why wasn't he returned to the parkway, right? Where yeah. he sort of belongs. Um, and again, raising this question of where do these birds belong. Yeah. The, the rehabber's arguments were, well, they're, you know, it's, it's dangerous, obviously, you know, vehicle collisions and a, a more sort of quasi-natural place is better for them. Um, and yet, um, interestingly, um, the, I mean, what's interesting about this story, I think, is that the hawks then abandoned, like, that winter, they abandoned the nest at the Franklin Institute because, I guess, as far as they knew, all their three offspring had died that summer. Um, and they started building a nest over the train tracks, over the Schuylkill, um, you know, 30th Street station. That didn't work out. The male ended up getting killed by colliding with the, with the train. But it reminded me of a, a different story in New York, around the pale male nest, where they'd also had a rehab story. And they, and they brought the fledgling back to Central Park 
and the male hawk immediately flew into the tree to greet the young hawk and to sort of welcome him back. And so that, I, I think that made people wonder, like, to what extent are we thinking about these hawks as sort of individuals with a sense of sort of their family group and, yeah. you know, maybe a sense of, you know, did they evaluate the nesting site and sort of said, this, this no longer works, we're going to try and move somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and right, what if, right? What if the, the hawk had been returned? They might have stayed at the Franklin Institute, maybe not. It's just sort of an interesting question um, to what extent the hawks. And it also, I mean, this led to your title, your title, your paper, Why Not the City? Yeah, Why Not the City? And also, but also this sort of other question in animal studies and sort of on the social sciences side is are there ways that we can listen to the voices of these animals, right? I mean, they can't talk to us, obviously can observe their behavior and sort of learn from it but the fact that they certainly communicate with each other and that they're they're very aware of you know who's family who's not family who's an intruder hey podcast listeners tony christian and i failed to actually find any red tail hawks on this walk so here's a little bit of audio from the previous week when christian and i encountered mom at around 7.30, Christian and I chatting, walking around, trying to find the red-tailed hawks off of Logan Circle in Center City, Philadelphia, on a somewhat cloudy morning in the probably 40s by now. Um, we're walking up, what is that, Ray Street? No, Vine. And we're on the Basilica, the um, Roman Catholic Basilica, and... We were just chatting <laughs> and look up and all of a sudden, whoop, there's a hawk um, in a smallish London plane tree. Uh, the, what do you call her? Mom. The hawk, suitably named Mom, looking a little fluffed up like she's, I think she spent the night there? Um, somewhere around here. It's not, it's possible. Yeah. But they often, often like the tall buildings. So kind of chilling in a, in a smallish London plane tree right above um, Sister Cities Park, which is this neat little natural-style landscaped park um, in Center City, Philadelphia, which in the summer is a great place for kids to kind of like splash around in a wading pool. There it goes. And this... Did you, did you see where it went? Uh, it's the same tree. It's okay. to the left a little bit. So right. while we're standing here, yeah. we've been also watching a, a Cooper's Hawk that's in a sycamore... Or, sorry, London plane tree, which, which is, is kind of like a sycamore. Which is yeah. a sycamore. It's, it's a, a hybrid sycamore. of two different sycamores. I know, but our sycamores are so much better looking than the London plane trees, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't so know. It's pretty similar. I, no, but when you see, like, an American one that has, like, the white bark showing, and it's, I just like them so much more than the London plane trees. But this Cooper's hawk is, is sort of hanging out in this Actually, London plane tree. it looks like a tree. London plane next to a sycamore. See, the one next to it looks like a sycamore because it has the bark all the way to it. Yeah. And then the other one is exfoliating all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I, it just popped over the other side of the tree, I thought. It, it, I sort of lost track of it when it did, but I see it. There it is. Okay. Crossing the street while you're burning in an urban setting calls for a little caution because your eyes are always up. <laughs> you got to remember there's trucks. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we kind of... Ex- have expect to see a Cooper's hawk, not expect it at all. Never in a million, I don't think in a million years I would have said we've seen a Harrier flying yes. between skyscrapers in downtown Philadelphia. I mean, they might, I would think so in migration, but this is this should be over by now. So the Cooper's hawks, which you'll hear about if you listen to the, of course you'll all be listening next to the field guides episode about urban Cooper's hawks. Quickly, they are a different genus. 
Excipiters? Yeah, Excipiter. And then they are, which are sort of, to me, look like sort of leaner, less bulky, more sort of graceful looking hawks and tend to eat birds, correct? Exactly. Okay. And so in Philly, you'll see, we were talking about it before a little bit, um, about the Women's March, but uh, if you're, if when you see a flock of pigeons, sometimes they just seem to swirl around for no good reason, but it seems like they're going this way and they're going that way, and they're kind of like in this ball. Like, then look around for a slightly bigger <laughs> pigeon yeah. that's chasing all the other ones. Um, and that could be a Cooper's hawk. Uh, I think of it like when you watch those great nature documentaries about a, a ball of bait fish, yeah. you know, with all the, like, the tuna coming in and grab, trying to hit them. Like, that's what a, the, the flock of pigeons looks like so when, when there's that Cooper's hawk trying to pick one off out of the, the flock. Cooper's has a full crop and a bloody beak and apparently just at breakfast. Um, so thanks again for listening to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We want to thank our buddy Christian. Yeah, you're welcome. It's fun. Where do you work? I work at Drexel University, where I teach environmental politics. That's what you do. Um, And do you remember what journal was your article in? Uh, Nature and Culture. There we go. All right. So, again, follow this podcast episode up by listening to the Field Guide's Cooper's Hawk episode. If you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at urbwildlifecast. You can find us easily on Facebook. Uh, Get in touch with us. Let us know what you think and what ideas you might have for episodes. What wildlife can you walk around your city and observe? Or what are you researching in in your city? If you're a researcher, we love to get in touch and and hear about what you're doing. This is a great way to get the word out about it. Please leave us a positive review and a rating on your podcast listening app of choice. Spread the word about it. Until next time, um, get outside and and enjoy some nature, even if you're in the heart of a major city like Philadelphia. Bye-bye. Enjoy yourselves. So, actually, later that day, early afternoon, we were driving out Chestnut Street from where we live in West Philadelphia towards Center City, where we had been looking at the Hawks, and around uh, 39th Street or so, I had spotted a Cooper's Hawk flying over a mid-height apartment block, and then was, like, checking out the trees towards the base on the the street level and saw a red-tailed hawk perched in the tree. So I'm not sure if the two were directly connected, but it seemed really funny to see both a Cooper's Hawk and a red-tailed hawk just happened to be on the street uh, after we were looking so hard for them earlier in the day.